0: disdaining to produce proofs. They grew excited over it. There was a youthful private who listened with eager ears to the words of the tall soldier and to the varied comments of his comrades. After receiving a fill of discussions concerning marches and attacks, he went to his hut and crawled through an intricate hole that served it as a door. He wished to be alone with some new thoughts, that had lately come to him. He lay down on a wide bunk that stretched across the end of the room. In the other end, cracker boxes were made to serve as furniture. They were grouped about the fireplace. A picture from an illustrated weekly was upon the log walls, and three rifles were paralleled on pegs. The equipments hung on handy projections, and some tin dishes lay upon a small pile of firewood. A folded tent was serving as a roof. The sunlight, without, beating upon it, made it glow a light yellow shade. A small window shot an oblique square of whiter light upon the cluttered floor. The smoke from the fire at times neglected the clay chimney and wreathed into the room, and this flimsy chimney of clay and sticks made endless threats to set ablaze the whole establishment. The youth was in a little trance of astonishment. So they were at last going to fight. On the morrow, perhaps, there would be a battle, and he would be in it. For a time he was obliged to labor to make himself believe. He could not accept with assurance an omen that he was about to mingle in one of those great affairs of the earth. He had, of course dreamed of battles all his life, of vague and bloody conflicts that had thrilled him with their sweep and fire. In visions, he had seen himself in many struggles. He had imagined peoples secure in the shadow of his eagle-eyed prowess. But awake, he had regarded battles as crimson blotches on the pages of the past. He had put them as things of the bygone with his thought images of heavy crowns and high castles. There was a portion of the world's history which he had regarded as the time of wars, but it, he thought, had been long gone over the horizon and had disappeared forever. From his home, his youthful eyes had looked upon the war in his own country with distrust. It must be some sort of a play affair. He had long despaired of witnessing a Greek-like struggle. Such would be no more, he had said. Men were better, or more timid. Secular and religious education had effaced the throat-grappling instinct, or else firm finance held in check the passions. He had burned several times to enlist. Tales of great movements shook the land. They might not be distinctly Homeric, but there seemed to be much glory in them. He had read of marches, sieges, conflicts, and he had longed to see it all. His busy mind had drawn for him large pictures, extravagant in color, lurid with breathless deeds. But his mother had discouraged him she had affected to look with some contempt upon the quality of his war ardor and patriotism. She could calmly seat herself and, with no apparent difficulty, give him many hundreds of reasons why he was of vastly more importance on the farm than on the field of battle. She had had certain ways of expression that told him that her statements on the subject came from a deep conviction. Moreover, on her side, was his belief that her ethical motive in the argument was impregnable. At last, however, he had made firm rebellion against this yellow light thrown upon the color of his ambitions. The newspapers, the gossip of the village, his own picturings had aroused him to an uncheckable degree. They were, in truth, fighting finely down there. Almost every day, the newspapers printed accounts of a decisive victory. One night, as he lay in bed, the wind had carried to him the clangoring of the church bell as some enthusiast jerked the rope frantically to tell the twisted news of a great battle. This voice of the people rejoicing in the night had made him shiver in a prolonged ecstasy of excitement. Later, he had gone to his mother's room and had spoken thus. "Ma." I'm going to enlist. Henry, don't you be a fool, his mother had replied. She had then covered her face with the quilt. There was an end to the matter for that night. Nevertheless, the next morning he had gone to a town that was near his mother's farm and had enlisted in a company that was forming there. When he had returned home, his mother was milking the brindle cow. Four others stood waiting. "'Ma, I've enlisted,' he had said to her diffidently. "'There was a short silence. "'The Lord's will be done, Henry,' she had finally replied, "'and had then continued to milk the brindle cow. "'When he had stood in the doorway with his soldier's clothes on his back,' And with the light of excitement and expectancy in his eyes, almost defeating the glow of regret for the home bonds, he had seen two tears leaving their trails on his mother's scarred cheeks. Still, she had disappointed him by saying nothing whatever about returning with his shield or on it. He had privately primed himself for a beautiful scene. He had prepared certain sentences which he thought could be used with touching effect but her words destroyed his plans. She had doggedly peeled potatoes and addressed him as follows. You watch out, Henry, and take good care of yourself in this here fighting business. You watch out and take good care of yourself. Don't go a thinkin' you can lick the whole rebel army at the start because you can't. You're just one little feller amongst a whole lot of others, and you've got to keep quiet and do what they tell you. I know how you are, Henry. I've net you eight pair of socks, Henry, and I've put in all your best shirts because I want my boy to be just as warm and comfortable as anybody in the army. Whenever they get holes in them, I want you to send them right away back to me so as I can durn them. And always be careful and choose your company. There's lots of bad men in the army, Henry. The army makes them wild. And they like nothing better than the job of leading off a young fella like you, as ain't never been away from home much and has always had a mother, and a-learning him to drink and swear. Keep clear of them folks, Henry. I don't want you to ever do anything, Henry, that you would be ashamed to let me know about. Just think as if I was a-watching you. If you keep that in your mind always, I guess you'll come out about right. You must always remember your father, too, child, and remember he never drunk a drop of liquor in his life and seldom swore a cross oath. I don't know what else to tell you, Henry, excepting that you must never do no shirking, child, on my account. If so be a time comes when you have to be killed or do a mean thing, why, Henry, don't think of anything except what's right, because there's many a woman has to bear up against such things these times. "'And the Lord'll take care of us all. "'Don't forget about the socks and the shirts, child. "'And I put a cup of blackberry jam with your bundle, "'because I know you like it above all things. "'Good-bye, Henry. "'Watch out and be a good boy.' "'He had, of course, been impatient under the ordeal of this speech. "'It had not been quite what he expected, "'and he had borne it with an air of irritation.' He departed feeling vague relief. Still, when he had looked back from the gate, he had seen his mother kneeling among the potato parings, Her brown face, upraised, was stained with tears, and her spare form was quivering. He bowed his head and went on, feeling suddenly ashamed of his purposes. From his home he had gone to the seminary to bid adieu to many schoolmates. They had thronged about him with wonder and admiration. He had felt the gulf now between them and had swelled with calm pride. He and some of his fellows who had donned blue were quite overwhelmed with privileges for all of one afternoon, and it had been a very delicious thing. They had strutted. A certain light-haired girl had made vivacious fun at his martial spirit, but there was another and darker girl whom he had gazed at steadfastly, and he thought she grew demure and sad at sight of his blue and brass. As he had walked down the path between the rows of oaks, he had turned his head and detected her at a window, watching his departure. As he perceived her. She had immediately begun to stare up through the high tree branches at the sky. He had seen a good deal of flurry and haste in her movement as she changed her attitude. He often thought of it. On the way to Washington, his spirit had soared. The regiment was fed and caressed at station after station until the youth had believed that he must be a hero. There was a lavish expenditure of bread and cold meats, coffee and pickles and cheese. As he basked in the smiles of the girls and was patted and complimented by the old men, he had felt growing within him the strength to do mighty deeds of arms. After complicated journeyings with many pauses, there had come months of monotonous life in a camp. He had had the belief that, Real war was a series of death struggles with small time in between for sleep and meals. But since his regiment had come to the field, the army had done little but sit still and try to keep warm. He was brought then gradually back to his old ideas. Greek-like struggles would be no more. Men were better or more timid. Secular and religious education had effaced the throat-grappling instinct, or else firm finance held in check the passions. He had grown to regard himself merely as a part of a vast blue demonstration. His province was to look out, as far as he could, for his personal comfort. For recreation he could twiddle his thumbs and speculate on the thoughts which must agitate the minds of the generals. Also, he was drilled and drilled and reviewed and drilled and drilled and reviewed. The only foes he had seen were some pickets along the river bank. They were a sun-tanned philosophical lot who sometimes shot reflectively at the blue pickets. When reproached for this afterward, they usually expressed sorrow and swore by their gods that the guns had exploded without their permission. The youth, on guard duty one night, conversed across the stream with one of them. He was a slightly ragged man who spat skillfully between his shoes and possessed a great fund of bland and infantile assurance. The youth liked him personally. Yank, the other had informed him. You're a right dumb good feller. This sentiment, floating to him upon the still air had made him temporarily regret war. Various veterans had told him tales. Some talked of gray, bewhiskered hordes who were advancing with relentless curses and chewing tobacco, with unspeakable valor. Tremendous bodies of fierce soldiery who were sweeping along like the Huns. Others spoke of tattered and eternally hungry men who fired despondent powders, They'll charge through hell's fire and brimstone to get a holt on a haversack, and such stomachs ain't a-lastin' long, he was told. From the stories, the youth imagined the red, live bones sticking out through slits in the faded uniforms. Still, he could not put a whole faith in veterans' tales, for recruits were their prey. They talked much of smoke, fire, and blood— but he could not tell how much might be lies. They persistently yelled, FRESH FISH! at him, and were in no wise to be trusted. However, he perceived now that it did not greatly matter what kind of soldiers he was going to fight, so long as they fought, which fact no one disputed. There was a more